My name is Erin Macri and I'm a member of the BJSM editorial team. Today I am in Milwaukee with four researchers at the 6th International Patellofemoral Pain Research Retreat. And I've been seeing some really interesting discussion today about this concept of dynamic knee valgus. And so I'm going to, in a moment, uh, have them introduce themselves and then we're going to talk a little bit about dynamic knee valgus. The reason why I'm interested in this is because as a physio, when I was in physio school, you know, I was taught that the knee is capable of flexion and extension because it's kind of a hinge joint. And, you know, maybe when you bend your knee to like 90 degrees, you also have a bit of internal and external rotation of the tibia. But I wasn't really told that knee abduction is a thing. Fast forward, now as a patellofemoral pain researcher, I've been trying to make sense of the literature myself and have found it to be somewhat confusing. And so since the four of you are sort of experts in dynamic knee valgus, I was hoping that you might be able to shed some light for me on uh, what's important about dynamic knee valgus and um, why, why I should care as dynamic knee valgus. So I will let uh, the four of you maybe just briefly introduce yourselves. And then from there, I'm just gonna throw you into the ring and let you go for it. Okay, great. Well, my name is Dr. Simon Lack, and I am a physiotherapist and senior lecturer from Queen Mary University of London. I am David Bazza-Jones, an associate professor and director of the post-professional athletic training program at the University of Toledo in Toledo, Wisconsin, uh, Ohio. I'm Gretchen Salsik, professor of physical therapy and athletic training at St. Louis University. I'm Christian Barton, a senior postdoctoral research fellow at the Trove Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Center. All right, so why don't we start with just talking a little bit about what dynamic knee valgus is, and then I can sort of let you naturally carry on from there. So dynamic knee valgus uh, can be described a number of different ways. We, we're trying to put a lot of metrics to it, but one way we, we can think about it is just really descriptive. And um, the, the descriptive picture of that is that the knee collapses inward during weight-bearing activities. So if you can envision going up and down the stairs where your knee collapses inward um, inside your ankle, that's, that's what medial collapse looks like. And then we were having this discussion as to sort of why we think it's important or, or how we think it might uh, relate or be relevant in populations with patellofemoral pain. And, and this is all based off of uh, fundamental theory that uh, where you get that dynamic knee valgus pattern is subsequently results in an elevated stress of the lateral patellofemoral joint and the way in which it interacts with the, the lateral uh, trochlea and this increased stress then can subsequently result in nociception through possibly through subchondral bone and, uh, and and that's when patients are presenting to us with patellofemoral pain. So Knee valgus is important to patellofemoral pain for a number of reasons. Uh, one would be that it's an easy metric for us to assess clinically um, to be able to understand the mechanics of how people are moving. However, we need to really understand that knee valgus is, is uh, informed or uh, other motions besides motions at the knee influence uh, how someone's knee moves. So we also have to understand that knee valgus is a combination movement three-dimensional movement of hip interrotation, hip adduction, uh, possibly foot motion, tibial motion, um, and pelvis and trunk motion possibly as well. So it's a very complex movement. What we see in the literature is that um, the, the specific knee abduction or valgus uh, might be specific to a, certain tasks. So for example, uh, running or um, a task like squatting, which is often how it's assessed. And then uh, it might be also be specific to certain genders, certain sexes, in that 
it seems like during running, uh, males or studies that combine males and females uh, demonstrate more valgus, which is opposite of what we typically think. Uh, but when we look at why that's happening, why aren't females being identified with valgus, it may be that because their uh, input for, for the valgus is coming from the hip. So it seems like during running, they have increased hip adduction. So gr both groups might be experiencing valgus, but the way that we're looking at it, if we're, all, if we're only looking at the knee, we might be missing some of the story. Uh, so it does seem like valgus is an important factor in, a P, in PFP populations. Can I ask a group a question? How do we go about changing the valgus and when should we bother changing it? Yeah. <laughs> Great question. That was good. Uh, I mean, we, you know, Gretchen presented her work. I asked a question that evolved around that is that, you know, when we've got a patient population in front of us presenting with dynamic knee valgus, uh, you know, in whom are we going to choose to intervene or, or try to affect that movement pattern? When is it looking to be contributing to their presentation of patellofemoral pain and, and when not? And, and I suppose you, you came back to me with the answer. Oh. Just, just <laughs> well, well, sure. I think um, there's, there's one way that, that I like to keep things simple, that, that we could assess this clinically. And um, I like to use a single limb squat, but there are other tasks um, and clinical tests that we could use. Basically, it's a weight-bearing uh, flexed knee task, and you're looking for this medial or inward displacement of the knee. One thing I like to um, check for is whether or not that task exacerbates pain. And um, it should if that pattern is related to pain. And so um, you can ask your patients, for example, to exaggerate that pattern. Let your knee fall in even more and see if that increases pain. Um, and if it does, uh, and they reciprocal, I guess, is true, if you ask them to control that and pain gets better, that to me says that's a pretty good candidate for reducing dynamic valgus as a target for our intervention. I'm going to ask another question. Is there anything we consider around structural influences of this and when maybe what we see is excessive knee valgus is actually quite normal for that person and how would you go about assessing that? Yeah, so I suppose this is where I, I put my clinical hat on and I go, okay, there may be some individuals who demonstrate an equal degree of dynamic knee valgus on their left and right knee but have symptoms on their on their left knee and this could be structurally derived, so it could be due to um, increased femoral antiversion, for example, and so what you're then looking at trying to do is you're, trying, you're thinking, oh, we're going to change a structural component and we're not going to be doing that. So, so then I think you're looking at a different paradigm of treatment. It's, it's not necessarily about trying to change that movement pattern. It's about conditioning them to be able to meet the demand of that movement pattern. Working within the, the um, structural constraints that they have. So you might not get rid of the dynamic valgus pattern, but can you, can you lessen it? Can you modify it somewhat within their structural constraints? And maybe not. Um, and that's quite possible if there's a true structural problem. So if I may ask another question, what do we think might influence dynamic knee valgus? So let's assume that we would expect them to move with what we consider an ideal alignment. What would actually influence their dynamic valgus? So how did you, how did they get there? Is that what you're you're asking? Yep. Well, I think I think we've semi touched on that, but I think there are there are going to be structural drivers for some. I think that there are going to be then what I would term biomechanical drivers and, and what sits within that is a person's chosen movement pattern or, or 
movement. Their movement pattern, it could equally be the functional capacity of their muscles, so as a, a weakness that is then resulting in them moving in that way. And, and then we're into this whole conversation of, do we think that this is predominantly driven proximally, or do we think that this has a distal driver? I think it's important to remember that it's probably more than one of those things. Um, so if we intervene and change strength, it probably isn't going to change their movement pattern and vice versa. Um, so we really need to be looking at all the different factors that could be influencing it. I totally agree. Um, one place I would start, though, is look at the movement first. If they can change the movement and that has some effect on their pain, you're done. And you don't need to go to these other tests and measures and other aspects necessarily. So I totally agree. I just would always start with the movement. Is there an immediate modification that can be achieved? It's like a treatment direction test, isn't it? And then you, and you've, you've modified their pain. You've demonstrated that a change in that movement pattern can re result in a reduction in symptoms. And then I see it then that you, you try to break down that task and try and understand as to what are the drivers of that. And is that a muscle function thing? Is it a movement control or a pattern driver? And, and then that's, that's kind of, I suppose, where you go. What about you, Christian? How would you approach it? <laughs> um, I think all of the points made are really important. It is a complex thing, and I guess the questions are whether we need to change it based on structure, etc. But there certainly are people who respond really well to changing it in terms of pain reduction. I think one of the more simple ways for clinicians to think about uh, knee valgus or anything in the frontal transverse plane is to think about the sagittal plane first. Yeah. And I think that's really important. We know that there's a strong influence on how much knee flexion someone gets and that relationship with knee valgus. And so sometimes the most simple way of changing is actually just to change what's happening in the sagittal plane. And so if we use a running example, then a simple running cue that you might use that's not necessarily published in the literature is just ask someone to run a little bit taller and that would reduce how much knee valgus that they get, and that might be enough to change their pain. Equally, it would also reduce their patellofemoral joint stress as well because they're in less knee flexion. Another common thing to consider around sagittal plane also might be pelvic position. So we know from some squatting-based research that the more anteriorly tilted your pelvis is, the more internal rotation and hip adduction that you'll get. And simply by changing that by a few degrees, the same thing can happen. And you can play around with this yourselves at home if you're listening, is stand up, do a squat with your bum stuck out, do one with your bottom tucked under, and you'll notice the difference in terms of how much knee valgus that you get. Keep it pretty simple if you can. I agree with the simple concept and the other thing to think about, I, I like the sagittal plane piece. If you're thinking more about just looking at where the knee is in the, in the observable frontal plane, stand up, see if you can keep your knee in line with your hip and in line with your ankle. So hip, knee, and ankle in the same line and the knee should not really deviate inward or, or outward from that line. So when you're assessing valgus, you should also assess uh, sagittal plane. But also, I think it's really important to quantitatively assess it because what we have is a very complex motion. Um, and when you're just doing it visually, you may miss some things. And there's a lot of uh, easy to use programs uh, with a phone or with um, some sort of video device that you might have clinically so that you can be sure that the way you're assessing it um, is reliable and valid and can be replicated uh, across clinicians and across uh, sessions. Well, maybe we could leave in the, in the notes um, maybe some examples of some of those tools that people could actually use in the clinic. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Um, just to touch on one point about that, I think one of the things we also need to consider around assessment is um, how valid or reliable that assessment can be. And certainly from some of the work we've worked on with Bart Dingenen from 
from Belgium looks at running and to measure knee valgus or measure hip adduction and do it accurately and get an accurate measure, you actually need to take the average of around eight strides. So one of the cautions we need to have is that maybe there's individual variability within each movement task. So I agree we need to try and measure it as best as we can, especially if we think it's related to pain, but also being mindful to have a really accurate measure. We might need to do an average of a number of different trials. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you very much you. for yeah, having cheers, us. Yeah. That was Simon Lack, David Bazett-Jones, Gretchen Salsik, and Christian Barton offering their advice on dynamic knee valgus at the 6th International Patellofemoral Pain Research Retreat held in Milwaukee this year in October of 2019. I would like now to just take a couple of moments to summarize some of the key points that were made here to consolidate the information for the BJSM listener who might be wanting to apply some of these considerations within a clinical context. First, the theory of why dynamic knee valgus is important in patellofemoral pain, movements that some might label as aberrant or abnormal that include femoral adduction, internal rotation, uh, relative increase in tibial external rotation, could lead to movements at the patellofemoral joint in terms of tracking during functional movements that result in a reduction in the contact area at the patellofemoral joint specifically. And a reduction in contact area with a given force through the patellofemoral joint results in an increase in pressure at the patellofemoral joint. So the idea is that dynamic knee valgus might result in an increase in pain at the knee because it is contributing to a reduction in contact area at the patellofemoral joint. So when you're assessing, a single leg squat is one of the most common ways to look for some of these movement qualities, but you can also certainly assess in other types of pain-provoking positions, particularly if a single leg squat does not cause pain in your patient. You, in addition to evaluating for dynamic knee valgus in the frontal plane, will also want to evaluate sagittal plane movements when people are doing the same movements. As far as treatment goes, you would definitely want to consider the person in front of you and develop a set of hypotheses as to what you think is contributing to the movement pattern. It might be related to muscle weakness or muscle recruitment strategies in, say, the foot intrinsics or in the hip abductors. It might be an overall motor control issue. It might be that the person has inadequate ankle dorsiflexion, and so they're having to compensate elsewhere in order to get as deep as they want to into the squat. In cases where you cue somebody and they're not able to improve or it doesn't decrease their pain, then of course you would be taking a different approach to treating. For example, you might then look to see if taping the patella and then having them do these movements alters their pain. Or you might look more at a load management strategy and and not be looking at uh, treating the dynamic knee valgus per se. So that concludes today's podcast. Thank you again to the researchers who joined me at the retreat. And thank you, the BJSM listener, for being here. I hope you have a physically active day. 